Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. For the second year running, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, or as it is commonly known, GLAD, has released a social media safety index that again this year finds that major tech platforms are failing to keep LGBTQ users safe. The report was released at a time when the broader social and political context is growing more dangerous. In the U.S., nearly 250-plus anti-LGBTQ bills have been introduced in legislatures this year, even as we see a surge of online hate speech and disinformation about the LGBTQ community, as well as physical attacks. To learn more about the challenges this community faces in holding social media platforms to account, I spoke to two people who helped author the report and devise the index. Jenny Olson, I'm with GLAD, the National LGBTQ Media Advocacy Organization, and I'm the Senior Director of our Social Media Safety Program, working on platform accountability. My name is Andrea Hacko, and I'm a research analyst with Goodwin Simon Strategic Research. Thank you both for joining me. This is year two for the Social Media Safety Index. Before we get into the report and some of its results, can you tell me what you set out to do and why this suits the mission of GLAD? Last year, uh, we issued the inaugural Social Media Safety Index report. And kind of the, the idea we had was that we would set out a, a baseline of the landscape around LGBTQ safety with regard to social media platforms in a variety of categories, you know, obviously around things like uh, anti-LGBTQ hate and harassment, very huge part of the report uh, and what we looked at, but also data privacy, algorithms and AI, all kinds of facets of content moderation, training of content moderators. Um, anyway, uh, multiple areas. And so in last year's report, we were, we set out kind of what the baseline is and established a bunch of recommendations, uh, met with the platforms. And, and we have ongoing relationships with the platform's around kind of monitoring and rapid response. And then the idea this year was to evaluate them and get a LGBT specific scorecard. And so we partnered with Ranking Digital Rights and with Goodwin Simon Strategic Research and brought on Andrea as our research analyst. Um, And so she worked on the scorecard component. Andrea, that might be a good prompt to ask you about the methodology for this report and index and how you came up with these figures. Yes. So um, really, um, in developing those indicators, we looked to ranking digital rights and drew on their best practices and uh, developed 12 draft indicators to see how tech companies and social media platforms, how their policies impact LGBTQ expression, privacy, and safety according to those 12 indicators. And so um, in terms of methodology development, we first in close uh, collaboration with GLAD drafted those indicators, uh, received feedback from Ranking Digital Rights, um, conducted five stakeholder interviews with experts working at the intersections of tech policy and human rights, 
as well as feedback from the Social Media Safety Index Advisory Committee. And so uh, based on that feedback, we revised those draft indicators and conducted a policy analysis. Can you quickly detail what the 12 dimensions of the index are and what you were trying to evaluate? Andrea, in your comment there, you you talked about the kind of looking at expression, privacy, and safety. Um, And, you know, they're in these kind of buckets around public-facing policies in terms of protections of LGBTQ users, buckets around uh, data privacy, around um, particularly around targeting by third-party advertisers, and then miscellaneous items around training of moderators, the options for pronoun inclusion. Andrea, help me out here. <laughs> what are the other items? We also have an indicator addressing uh, prohibitions against targeted dead naming and misgendering. Company commitment to diver- diversifying their workforce. And then also uh, two indicators addressing targeted advertising. Mm-hmm. And I think, so, you know, just to jump ahead, talking about in going over these things with the platforms, because we, we and we did this last year as well, it's like, here's the report, we go over it with them, the draft version of the report, get their feedback on whether there's anything, you know, factually inaccurate. And, you know, all of the the indicators are, are designed uh, looking at their public facing policies. And so there are some examples where they convey to us in certain ways, but not in public facing ways, you know, that of how they may or may not interpret their own rules with regard to content moderation. And I think, I mean, everyone in this field, you know, it's like the watchword of the year is transparency, right? We have no transparency. So we don't know (laughs) what, how do they, you know, make these decisions. And so that is, you know, one of the other kind of top, top, top level recommendations of the report is there needs to be transparency. The other indicator that we included too was um, around company transparency, around the steps companies take to um, stop the demonetization and wrongful removal of legitimate content related to LGBTQ issues in ad services. Let me just jump onto that as well because that's so important and it is this th- it is the thing that gets often gets lost in these conversations because we have so much emphasis on our request as glad is that the companies do a better job of you know taking down anti-lgbt content but that we also want them to stop taking down <laughs> legitimate lgbt content you know and that we are we are disproportionately impacted by you know, those kinds of takedowns. And anyway, it's, it's a, it's a really important, such an important component of it. I want to get into some of the specifics you raise here, but I just want to pause on the scores, you know, out of a potential score of 100, while you do give each of the platforms you look at and it's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, while you do give each of them a hundred, at least on their policy intent to protect LGBTQ users, None of these platforms scores more than 50% on the combined score. This is worse than a failing grade. It was interesting, you know, once we had the indicators developed and I thought like, I mean, of course, I kind of, I thought like, oh, they're probably not going to do very well, but I was actually surprised (laughs) at how badly they did. I mean, I think there's so much to say. I think, you know, the other thing that kind of 
you know, back to the transparency thing that is, is also just missing here because we don't have transparency is that top line. The first indicator is, you know, yes, they all got, they actually got a hundred on that indicator that they do have policies protecting that say that they protect LGBTQ users, but the enforcement piece, we can't evaluate the enforcement piece because we don't know, we don't have that transparency. Although if we did, one can imagine they would do even worse, <laughs> um, given our you know anecdotal experiences of that. Just to lean in on one other specific thing, because with regard to that, is the the indicator on uh, whether they have a targeted misgendering and dead naming policy uh, or uh, you know aspect to their hateful conduct policies, and as we recommended in the in last year's report, that everyone should follow the leadership of Twitter, I guess Twitter instituted that in, I think, 2018. Pinterest actually also has a prohibition against misgendering and deadnaming, targeted misgendering and deadnaming. Just to be clear, this isn't, you know, if you accidentally misgender someone, this is about, you know, really characterizing it that targeted misgendering and deadnaming is a, and like now, just an incredibly common, frequent method of hate and harassment of transgender people. And so it's a really important policy. And and so we recommended that all the platforms adopt that. And we did get, uh, in March, TikTok adopted an express prohibition. Of course, YouTube and Meta have not. But our you know argument is that even if they don't have that policy explicitly, that it actually falls underneath their existing policy and that targeted misgendering and deadnaming is a form of uh, hateful expression based on gender identity, um, which is a protected category in their hateful conduct policies. So, you know, these are the, and these are the, the back and forth that we continue to, you know, pressure them and argue with them and do what, you know, what GLAD does <laughs> as an advocacy organization. There are a couple of other areas that appear to substantially drag down the scores. One is sexual orientation and gender identity data control. And another where each of the platforms appear to perform very poorly is around stopping the demonetization or removal of legitimate LGBTQ content. Do you have anything you'd like to say about those two in particular, where the platforms appear to be performing very poorly? So, yeah, I mean, in terms of the demonization and wrongful removal of LGBTQ, legitimate LGBTQ related content, there's a huge issue of um, LGBTQ creators being blocked and demonetized, which not only prevents them from fully expressing themselves, but also restricting them from economic opportunities. So, yeah, we would um, want companies to be fully transparent about how the concrete steps they take on addressing this issue. And then also, in addition to uh, being transparent about the steps they take to address the issue, also um, disclosing data around the wrongful removal of LGBTQ-related content and, and creators just to, to, first of all, see what is the extent of the issue and then um, allowing advocates to track over time whether or not the issue has improved and um, whether this content has been reinstated. But yes, as, as we see in the, in the results, unfortunately, um, there's only very little 
transparency in this regard. You raise a conundrum here. On the one hand, you are calling on the platforms to be more aggressive in their application of their own policies to deal with homophobia, transphobia, hate speech. And yet you are also very worried about overreach, censorship of LGBTQ content and expression. These platforms simply don't do a terribly good job of executing against their own policies. And when they attempt to do it, they make a lot of mistakes. It's a, you know, I I was so excited to get to do this interview with you and to go more deeply into this in a way that we're, I feel like it's like we're talking within the field. And, you know, obviously this is one of the, the huge dilemmas. One of my greatest frustrations is that as a field and as a world, we end up having this conversation. And like a lot of the times what happens is there's this kind of like, oh God, wow, it's like so difficult. I mean, you know, oh, well, I guess they're doing the best they can. And like, I don't know what I would do if I was in that position. And and then it there's this way that it lets the companies off the hook. And, you know, yes, I get it's difficult. <laughs> I get very agitated about it. Like, okay, you're a multi-billion dollar company. Figure it out. You know, I, the, and, you know, from a consumer standpoint, from a, you know, other industries that are regulated, you know, fully regulated, are forced to figure these things out and to absorb these costs in particular and to, you know, bring whatever the, the engineering solutions are to the table. You know, I, I'm not an engineer. I mean, I do have some background in this. I was on that end of the work when I was one of the co-founders of planetout.com in the 90s, one of the big gay websites. You know, so I get like, it's not easy. At the same time, this is what you built. This is your product. You built it. You need to make a safe product. If you're in any other industry, there are regulations that say your product has to be safe and you have to incur the costs of making it safe. You don't get to outsource those costs onto society. And, and you know, I use the examples of the auto industry was forced to install catalytic converters in the 1970s and they screamed and dragged their feet and, you know, well, we can't do it. It's too expensive, you know, but our air would be a lot worse if, if the state of California and then the federal government hadn't, you know, forced those regulations or, oh, whoops, sorry, we dumped toxic chemicals into the waterways. Oh, well, I guess you're going to have to pay a $10 billion fine. So maybe... There, since there are consequences for that, you will find a solution. You know, again, the industry will absorb those costs. And obviously, regulatory solutions, regulatory oversight, those are also very big conversations. And there's lots of proposals out there. And, and, and you know, we're advocating for regulatory solutions that are carefully crafted. And particularly from an LGBT perspective, we don't want to be unintentionally negatively impacted again, you know, but there is that sense of what we're doing and other advocacy groups are doing is, you know, trying to hold their feet to the fire, trying to, you know, get public awareness, say they have to do better, they have to do better, but it's still all voluntary. (laughs) It's still all, they can just do what, honestly, whatever they want. And that's not... They're never going to effectively self-regulate as an industry anyway. So 
I start to get very, you know, agitated <laughs> about those things. But I, but I appreciate the opportunity to talk about them. You know, it's interesting working with the folks inside the platforms, and and I, I mean, our our general conversations are all whatever confidential. But in a general sense, like one of the things that we we do get back from them is that they are saying hold us accountable. They are saying that they see the value in this. At the same time, I'm I don't feel naive that they're just going to obviously that they're, they're going to just be like, "Oh, okay, we see all those recommendations. Well, yeah, we'll just do all those things like problem solved." <laughs> it makes sense that you've given an entire page to just listing out the revenues of the social media platforms in their many billions. But Maybe on that theme of progress that you are making and efforts they are taking to work with you, you have a call out here on the state of conversion therapy content policies, how the platforms handle those. You have specific examples here of what these companies have done, and in some cases in response to your advocacy, and perhaps the last version of this index. You know, we did last year decide like strategically that it would make sense to lean in to in these two particular areas, one you know, being the specific language around the, you know, urging them to add targeted misgendering and denaming prohibition and a prohibition against so-called conversion therapy content. And, you know, which is widely decried and, you know, including like the UN referred, you know, has described it as torture, as equivalent to torture. Um, and it's outlawed in 20 plus countries and I can't remember how many states. And, you know, it's just a, it's a horrible, horrible practice. And we uh, worked with TikTok this past year um, and TikTok did add an express prohibition against conversion to therapy content. And also actually Twitter added to their ad policy uh, prohibition against conversion therapy advertising content. And one of the main things that we lean into in the report is all the amazing work of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. They did two reports last year or earlier this year, going way deeply into the, the specifically the problem of this content on social media and, and looking at how uh, widespread it is. One of the things that you do detail here is the problem of some right-wing media, which produce an asymmetric amount of problematic content that ends up spreading on social platforms. How do you think about that? How do you disentangle right-wing media that are adversarial from GLAD's interests from the broader social media problem? Thanks for asking that question. And um, I get very emotional about this. I mean, right now, in the actual world and on social media, LGBTQ people are under attack and particularly trans folks. But, you know, there's more than 300 bills across state legislatures, anti-LGBT bills, anti-trans bills. And then the attacks in the last, particularly the last couple of weeks, physical attacks of the Proud Boys, Patriot Front, showing up at gay bars, pride events, events at public libraries, you know, harassing people physically in person and, you know, really terrifying and absolute extremists. And there's a direct connection to social media. 
there are certain accounts on social media, right-wing accounts, not to mention, you know, actual Republican elected officials who are, you know, and with, you know, these are people with millions of followers who are bullying and harassing LGBT people on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Hello, this is in the policies, you know. And so I am furious and terrified, you know, but furious with these figures who are just perpetuating this tidal wave of hate, but then also furious at these companies. And so this is the thing, you know, then you get in this like cycle of like, why, like, why is it like this? Obviously it's two things. It's, you know, the political motivation and like Sarah Kate Ellis, our GLAD's president and CEO in the introduction to the report, she writes something like, um, you know, targeting vulnerable groups of people as a political strategy is something that we've seen across history, right? That's what's happening. That is what's happening. And we're terrified, but everyone should be terrified, you know, and I think people who are thoughtful, intelligent people realize this is impacting everyone. Obviously, it's impacting our democracy. It's terrifying for everyone. <laughs> and, you know, we can make corollaries to the 1930s. You know, so it's good to see there are good people who are standing up and who are who are able to describe what this is. But then the other thing is the money and that so much of it, you know, I mean, there are certain, and there are all these entities that like, you don't even want to name these people or these entities, you know, but the right-wing media entities where, you know, it's a network of like, this is the name of the company. And these are, you know, this is our quote unquote talent. These are our people. These are these, you know, hate-driven personalities, these pundits who are just spewing extremist hate. Actually, Kara Swisher, tech reporter Kara Swisher, who was on our advisory committee, she has this phrase, you know, uh, enragement equals engagement, right? And I mean, we all know this. It's like, it's why things get so it's just like, what? who can say the most horrible things and that this is going to drive more traffic and, you know, but that these media entities are, making money <laughs> that they're like, you know, subscribe, buy merch, da, 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 pay, pay. But of course that the platforms are making money. And then this is, you know, this is the crux of back to that dilemma. You know, the other dilemma piece here is that they have an absolute hundred percent conflict of interest to not take down hate driven content because they themselves are making money off of it. And there's a million examples of like, you know, YouTube videos that are totally violative that have ads on them. And the creator, quote unquote creator, is making money. And, you know, Google is making money and a lot of money. You know, and again, that goes back to the regulatory solutions is like, you know, it makes sense. They're for profit companies. They're not gonna... <laughs> reduce their profits. Um, and um, Francis Haugen has like such great stuff about that. And, you know, it's been an exciting year with, you know, the Facebook papers and whatever, and everyone is working so hard in this field. And I try to have hope, but 
anyway, yeah, it's a very, very scary, scary time. I agree with the way you've described this vicious cycle, which is driven by the economics of our current media and information ecosystem. I mean, of course, bigotry is the fundamental problem, the first problem, the problem that was here long before social media. But these economic incentives, these platform incentives, these game mechanics that make it profitable and compelling for individuals to lean into that bigotry and to use it as a tool to both make money and organize others, that is an unacceptable circumstance. But it does sound like you are slightly optimistic. The people close in, the people you are dealing with at the platforms, understand the challenge? I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I mean, some some do. And I think some some platforms, that there are different cultures at the different platforms. And I think some of them do and some of them don't. But at least on the whole, based on the grades I'm seeing here and based on the report, you do not assess that at the corporate level, any of these platforms is truly prepared to respond to the situation as it is. Yeah, I mean, I think that is more a function of the fact that they are for-profit companies, which, like, it's not surprising, you know. And, I mean, Francis Haugen talks a lot about that, you know, in terms of it's what they're supposed to do is make money for their, you know, for their stockholders. You know, in the case of Meta, you know, like, they're supposed to make money for their stockholders. And um, I think one of the, one of my, favorite things to kind of point at point to, you know, I, well, and that we talk a lot about is that like, they do actually have tools at their disposal that they can and do implement at times. And the fact that they can and do implement them at times is a reminder that they're not the rest of the time that they do, they do have choices. And of the best example is the, there were a couple of really great New York times pieces about uh, the lead up to the 2020 election and how Facebook in particular did actually implement, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, speed bumps or friction, you know, slowing things down uh, in terms of, you know, misinformation and coincidentally, you know, hate and, uh, you know, borderline or low quality content. You know, they want to pretend that it's just like, oh, I don't know, it's just this like neutral landscape. And it, yeah, God, people are so terrible. And like, I don't know, <laughs> we're just this like, empty desert and like people are just out there being terrible but as we know they have very sophisticated algorithms and tools that you know that they use then they put all their energy into like getting us those ads and that they could you know and, and anyway but the times piece about the 2020 election lead up was like you know yeah they were really responsible and hopefully they will be this responsible in the next couple of months leading up to the midterms. Glad is also part of the Change the Terms Coalition, which we're doing work on that. But, you know, then it was like, okay, <laughs> the election is over. We can, you know, turn the dials back to normal. And, you know, and then what happened after, you know, after the election? I mean, I was doing this work last, around, Jan you know, January 6th. And I remember messaging to the platforms like, okay, I'm setting aside my gay stuff and saying like, here's stop the seal groups, like take these things down, <laughs> you know, anyway, you know, and which they did and which again, like I get that these are big jobs, they're big things and they are, they do mean they make less money. But again, you know, it's the difference between, you know, a safer product and a an unsafe product. And I suppose democracy or not democracy. 
Yeah. And, you know, I mean, these larger level conversations, like we are in a crazy dilemma, the fact that we have for-profit companies that are effectively moderating our public conversations. And like, I get on the one hand that they don't necessarily in a way want to be in that position. I wouldn't want to be working at, you know, Twitter and have to be the person who is like, literally it's on my shoulders to make a decision, like a big decision, you know, a big decision, like deplatforming some crazy person (laughs) who is like a huge public figure. But, you know, here we are, you know, and, and part of that, you know, just to say, like, that's because of, you know, it's the culture of Silicon Valley, like, and it's so interesting, the piece that just came out on Monday, the, uh, the Guardian stuff about Uber, it's like that, the culture of it is like, yeah, it's like, how can we basically create a product that is just sidestepping every regulatory thing that exists, you know, and like Uber is like, oh, how can we, and gig work, how can we destroy a hundred years of the labor movement progress? Like, we'll just go around it. And, you know, so here we are with these, you know, unregulated, you know, essentially unregulated products. Anyway, I mean, it's exciting to look to the EU and, you know, the DSA and, and um, to see you know, that maybe maybe the rest of the world can give some consequences to these crazy American companies and, you know, TikTok. There are a range of recommendations in the report and many respond to the particular indices you are measuring. So you're making specific policy recommendations to the platforms where they have scored poorly. But if Mark Zuckerberg or one of the other social media platform CEOs were listening to this podcast, what is the key takeaway you'd hope they'd come away with? Okay, I'm going to say what's coming to my heart because I do think like there's something to be said for speaking to, in theory, to people as people, you know, which I think about a lot. And I think about a lot, like really seriously in relation to, you know, so all of the companies have, they they make, you know, really incredible statements about their values with regard to, in particular, in this instance, LGBTQ safety on the platforms, now, there's a really great thing that that Meta has on their platform about, you know, that their their values about that people should feel safe and should be free from hate and harassment, and it's a very earnest and beautiful thing. And I would just say that I would really love for. Mark Zuckerberg and other CEOs to look into their hearts and think about their actual personal values with regard to how people should, how people should be treated, how people should, you know, and I mean, the truth is that the companies have these actual rules for a reason so that we can all feel safe. And I know I don't mean safe in a you know, in a quote unquote woke, politically correct, blah, 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 you know, cancel culture kind of way. Like, I mean, that whole way of looking at it, you know, has has just poisoned the whole conversation. It's just like we all we do actually as a society have values about pluralism and about not attacking people for who they are, you know, which is why the policies exist in the first place. And, you know, there is a line. And I would really hope 
that they could find a way to take that to heart in an earnest, sincere way. And that's not to be naive and that's not to be, you know, tendentious. It's just to be like, as people like the, you know, I'm just the last thing to say, you know, is that we get, we end up stuck in these ridiculous circles of conversation that are predicated on bad faith arguments, disingenuous points that are about, you know, honestly, hate driven people taking up all of our time (laughs) like it's the other thing is like i'm just it's like go put your like the amount of time and energy that these people put into like engaging us in these disingenuous arguments i want to be able to say shitty things on the internet it's like get a life (laughs) and stop taking up all of our time with this stupid argument, it's crazy. I I just, you know, sometimes I think if we spent this much time and energy on something constructive, we could solve climate change. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks. <laughs> End of TED Talk. Andrea, anything you'd like to add in closing? Yeah, I mean, I, what, I, what I would say is that, I mean, it's really about um, when companies um, create these policies and services and products, it's really about keeping their most vulnerable users in mind. And I think a really important aspect related to that is to making sure that the right people sit at those tables and those vulnerable communities are represented in those conversations around policies and products and services in order to make sure their needs are taken into consideration. I appreciate the two of you speaking to me today and bringing those needs to the fore. And I hope we'll see these scores improve in 2023. Thanks, Justin. I hope everyone will go to uh, glad.org slash SMSI and check out the report. And yeah, really, really grateful. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.